Daniel chapter 5, oh sorry, chapter 6. If you want a repeat of last week's sermon, turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 5. If you'd like something new, let's go to Daniel chapter 6. And um, for those who uh, haven't been around or weren't here last week, I'm seated because I have a boot on my left foot. Uh, Too much dancing, they say. And uh, so it'll be in there for a couple more weeks, and then, and then I'll be back to wandering around. Mostly I'm concerned about my ability to wander around in this boot and, and, and turn and stay balanced and that kind of thing. So uh, best that I sit here. Daniel 6, we'll read it in just a moment. But God's, God's design for us in learning, uh, in part, is for us to learn from what we see in others. We know this from a very early age, babies learning language and hand gestures and how to use utensils and all these kinds of things by imitation, by following examples. Uh, And so there's no real surprise that in the Bible God intends for us to take certain people certain events as examples, as things to look at and learn from. Yes, 2 Timothy 3, the Bible makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And part of the way that we learn how to trust and obey is by looking at these who have gone before us. In some cases, we look at examples specifically uh, to not follow them. Uh, Remember Jesus talking about the Pharisees basically told them that Uh, told his followers that uh, he says their words are more reliable than their lives. Remember that? In Matthew 23, he says, Do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Others are examples to follow, so that in the life of the church, Peter tells elders that they are to not be domineering over those in their charge, but be examples to the flock, 1 Peter 5, verse 3. And then we come to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 has an entire smorgasbord, as it were, of those who are examples of what it means to walk by faith. Noah walking by faith and building the ark. Abraham walking by faith and taking his son up Mount Moriah. Um, the children of Israel even walking by faith to cross the Red Sea and to, to march around Jericho to see it crumble. And, and example after example comes. And then toward the end of the chapter, uh, it, this is read, "'Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, stopped the mouths of lions, a direct reference to what happens in Daniel chapter 6. And so let's look at Daniel 6. Let's listen to this familiar story, one you may have heard many, many times, one you may relegate to the children's Sunday school class or to vacation Bible school, but one that we all need to hear. Daniel chapter 6, this is what the Spirit says. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. 
and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. This Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought. And laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. 
So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray together. Oh God, teach us now your word. Send your spirit to open our eyes and ears to its truth that we might hear it and believe it and love it and live according to it. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. So, Daniel's faith runs throughout this chapter. And through seeing Daniel's example of faith, we are encouraged to trust the Lord who saves. Just as Daniel did. Trust the Lord who saves. So we're going to look at Daniel's faith, and then we're going to look at God's salvation. And, and the great majority, more of our time will be spent on the first, <coughs> because more time is spent in the chapter on the first. All right, so first, Daniel's faith. At the close of chapter 5, Belshazzar is killed. He was the last king of Babylon, so Babylon's kingdom is no more. And Darius the Mede takes control. And, it's, and, and, and under his control, just as had happened with Babylon in control, Daniel's faith shines brightly during these days. And we're going to notice four things about Daniel's faith. First, that it was public. Daniel's faith was public. In the first few verses of chapter 6, we see the new governmental structure, all right? There are these 120 satraps, which are going to oversee basically regions uh, of the empire, and then there are three government officials, three high officials, who oversee them, all right? So, um, Daniel is one of those three officials, and not only that, he's distinguished from the other two. Look at verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Notice what it says about why Daniel was so exalted. It wasn't because of him per se, especially if you have read the book of Daniel up until now, but because there is an excellent spirit in him. Back in chapter 4, 
we learn that it is the Spirit of the holy gods, this excellent Spirit. God had helped him back in chapter 1 to gain wisdom and insight and learn language and have understanding, and we've seen him be able to interpret dreams and, and all of these things, and all of it comes from God's work in his life. God's work in Daniel's life is on display for all to see, if you will. Everybody's taking notice. There's something peculiar about this Daniel. There's something that sets him apart. He seems to be able to answer these questions. I've read the accounts of when he gave interpretations to dreams to Nebuchadnezzar and how he spoke to Belshazzar and he interpreted the writing on the wall. Whatever's peculiar about this fellow, we need him in a place of influence. And when you come on this side of the Bible and you're looking at it with eyes of faith, you see, well, it's not simply that he's more talented than people. It's the, it's the work of God in him. It's his faith in the Lord. It's the faith that in chapter 1 kept him from, debasing, from defiling himself. This faith is on public display continually. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar brought him in and said, can you tell me what the dream is and what the interpretation is? Do you remember what Daniel said? He said, well, actually, I can't. But the Lord can. That's a statement of faith. His faith is public. It's not tucked away. He doesn't draw a line between his private life and his public life, between his private beliefs and his public service. And that's what true faith does. True faith doesn't stay hidden away. True faith permeates into every aspect of our lives. It affects how we work. It affects how we play. It, it affects how we parent. It affects how we are married. It affects our friendships. It affects everything. It affects every arena where God has placed us. And that's even true for Daniel, who is a government official. Daniel does not set aside his faith for service in high office. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, if one claims faith, that faith must shape how he governs, must shape how he leads. You see, friends, if our president claims Catholicity, the Catholic Church and Catholic doctrine, then it is reasonable to expect that such an important doctrine as the sanctity of human life in the womb would be reflected in his work as president. And in reality, the same can be true of past presidents whether it is their policy or their personal behavior. Now, it would be easy, wouldn't it, for us to sit around and talk about presidents all day? That's rather easy, isn't it? Isn't it easy to talk about how your boss is doing, right? Oh, if my boss says they're a Christian, but da 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 well, we're not here to look at it through, a, through, through, a, through a magnifying glass at the presidency, though it is relevant here. We're actually here to look in a mirror. I wonder if, if you claim to believe Christ privately, does that faith influence your life outside 
your home, outside your prayer closet? Is your faith public? Even if somebody can't put their finger on it, they might say, there's something peculiar about this fellow. There's something peculiar about this lady. He's always talking, he's always speaking in kind of proverbial language. Always attributing success to to the Lord and, 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 and not to herself. Seems to be boasting in her weakness. It doesn't look very good on her resume, but it sure looks good on the job. What's going on? Well, in God's kindness, Daniel's public faith finds favor with the king. That's why he's going to be exalted, but it doesn't just find favor with the king, right? Daniel's faith isn't just public, it's opposed. That's the second thing about Daniel's faith is that it's opposed. After Daniel gets this promotion and there are plans to give him this greater influence, envy burns within the other leaders. The faith that Darius favors these other high officials hate. Okay, look at verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Everything is happening in succession. If you notice, there are so many sentences that start with the word then. Then this happened, then this happened. So King Darius is going to promote him. First word in chapter in verse 4, then. Then these other men come to oppose him. But the problem is they can't find anything to pin an accusation on. Look at the second half of verse 4. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was in him. There are no curious expenditures on Daniel's credit card statement. There are no suspicious interactions with women that could be deemed inappropriate. There's no backroom gossip about the king. Daniel's faithful. He's loyal. He's trustworthy. His life and his work are marked by integrity. So just imagine these guys are going through the record. Like imagine them in, you know, a smoke-filled boardroom, which is where these kinds of things are supposed to happen, right? And they're sitting around and they're going through the record of Daniel's life. Nope, he's good at that. Nope, that's good. Nope. He's truthful. He's honest. He's loyal. He's reliable. He always... And can you just see their faces getting redder and redder, right? And steam is coming out of them. Because they can't find anything. And then a light comes on. I've got it. I know how to take him down. I know how to take him out, one says to the other. We got to zoom in on this whole God business. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So a conspiracy is hatched. In verse 6, 11, and 15, the phrase that they, these men come by agreement to one place or another. They come by agreement. In other words, they're up to something. And Daniel is in the crosshairs of this conspiracy. And so I won't read it again, but they come to the king and basically they want to play to the king's pride. So they say, you know what we should have, king? We should have Darius Appreciation Month. That's what we should have. And this is how it's going to work. We're going to set it up to where nobody 
can pray to anyone lest it comes through you. How about that? I mean, let's really focus on how great and how central you are. In other words, King, for one month, there'll be only one mediator between the gods and mankind, and it'll be you. And if anyone won't honor you in this way, King, well, what do you guys think? What do you guys think? We'll throw them in the lion's den. Now just sign this paper. We've written it all up for you. Now why this plan? It doesn't just come out of thin air, friends. Remember what they were looking for? A way to catch Daniel in connection with his God. They knew Daniel was a praying man. His windows weren't just open that day. They were always open and they could always see him kneeling. They could always see him praying. And so this is what they hatch. Friends, faithfulness to God will always draw the opposition of an unbelieving world. 2 Timothy 3 says, All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is actually the problem here in the United States. Many Christians who are Americans think how strange it is that people are opposing the Christian faith simply because principles of the Judeo-Christian ethic are used to found the country and we can see so many wonderful things in our history. Then all of a sudden we find it strange when an unbelieving world acts like an unbelieving world. This is what happens. But as we think about Daniel and we think about this, I couldn't help but actually wonder about myself and wonder about you. And I wonder, I wonder if there was a conspiracy in our country against me. I wonder what just pervasive evidence of faith enemies of the gospel would zoom in on. Is there anything in our lives that's so obvious so clear, so pervasive, it goes everywhere that we go, that if somebody at work is going to conspire to get you fired, they're going to zoom in on that thing and have that outlawed. Is there anything like that? It's a convicting question to consider. And in the middle of this opposition, Daniel's faith is next steady. His faith is steady. His faith doesn't wither. It doesn't shrink. It doesn't run. It doesn't hide. It stays steady, and whatever comes, comes. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And after being discovered, uh, the men go to the king, and in verse 13 they say, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Now, you got to listen. 
It's been like 60-something years since the exile. But this is the way of conquering kingdoms. They belittle the conquered kingdom. All right? That's what you do. You want to put people in their place, right? I mean, he doesn't say, Daniel, you know the guy you really like? The guy you're about to put in charge of the kingdom? He doesn't say that. Why? Because that wouldn't be good. Daniel, that exile from Judah, that no good Jew isn't listening to you. But through all of this, Daniel stays steady. He won't, he won't turn. He won't stop. But notice, in verse 10, Daniel didn't start praying as an act of rebellion, okay? He didn't say, oh, there's an injunction against praying, is there? Well, guess what I'm going to start doing? And I'm going to throw the windows open so everybody can see me. He's not, he doesn't take the attitude of, oh, I'll show them. No. His windows are always open. He's always praying. That's what it says at the end of verse 10. As he had done previously. There was nothing new about this. Now if you wonder why the windows are open toward Jerusalem, it's not because there's some uh, magical sense about that. Actually back when the temple, remember when the temple was dedicated and Solomon is dedicating the temple and he talks about the days when the people are scattered. If they're scattered for their sins, do you remember what he prays? He prays, Lord, if they pray Toward this place, will you hear them and forgive them and heal their land? You see, in effect, what had led to exile was Jerusalem was the city of God. The temple was the place where God's presence was, you know, focused, and that's where God met with His people. And as in sin and rebellion and idolatry, essentially what happened is the people of God turned their back on Jerusalem. As they turned their back on God, they turned their back on Jerusalem. And so now, talking about repentance, Solomon says, well, if they pray toward Jerusalem, if they're called by your name and they turn from their wicked ways and they pray, will you forgive their sin and heal their land? Those words weren't written for the United States of America first or any other nation save the nation of Israel that would be in exile when they would go to pray that. And so he just does what he's always done. He's not buying extra Christian bumper stickers for his car, you see. He's not making sure he always wears his big button that says, Hello, I am a Christian. He's just living his life the same way that he lived before the opposition came up. But nothing will detract him. Praying was the regular rhythm of Daniel's life. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Praying is as natural to faith as breathing is to life. And so for, for Daniel to stop praying is as impossible for him as it would be for him to stop breathing. How could I possibly do that? I mean, this is the power of spirit-empowered habit in our lives. God 
develops a rhythm in our life that by His grace won't be disrupted, not by trials, not by suffering, not by threats, not by persecution. Look, if we're only reading our Bibles and praying so that we can check the box, then when the hard days come, that box will go unchecked. But Daniel just keeps doing what he's always done. He doesn't do it out of mere duty. He doesn't do it out of mere obligation. But because communing with God is like air to him. He's not thinking, oh, I need to do my devotions. He's thinking, I need God. So the law of the land says, don't pray. And Daniel does. His faith is steady. I remember back in November, we as elders sat around the table and discussed the kinds of decisions we would have been faced with had the stay-at-home order just gone on with no end in sight. Things that are questions that are being answered in Canada right now, and Canadian pastors being arrested for it. These are good and helpful discussions to have, but but again, I think that's the easier one. As I think about all that happened to oppose Daniel's faith and would not shake him, I just wonder, what does it take to keep you from your time with the Lord? A big to-do list that's pressing? An early doctor's appointment? Early meetings? I wonder what it takes to keep us from the regular rhythm of worship with the church on the Lord's Day. I'm just, I'm so tired from a long week. It's just been a long week. I've got projects. I've got to get them done around the house. You know, my, my girl's sports schedule is conflicting with worship this week. I've got house guests that I'm not sure they'd really want to go if I went. The, the point isn't actually to say those things, so the, say just those things. The, the point is, how small are the things that can disrupt our rhythm? <laughs> how small they are. We're so easily disrupted. Now look, I, I love that we have a live stream and that we record sermons. I do. I love it. But the live stream isn't simply for convenience so you don't have to get anywhere. The live stream exists for those most primarily for those who can't get here. Those who are shut in, those who are sick, those who are hospitalized. If you can't find a gospel preaching church wherever you are on your vacation and it's going to go over a Sunday, well, okay. I would encourage you to try to find one because 
I found it a valuable thing to talk about with our children because not all churches do everything the same and it's just helpful to talk about those things wherever we're at. But there are some congregations, friends, that are accepting the duality, this kind of duality into the future that you can, you can be part of our church online or in person. And it sounds like for the rest of your life, I was in, I was in Knoxville. When I was in Knoxville at some point in the last few months, I was driving through town and I saw a billboard for a church that basically that had a picture of, uh, you know, a mouse with a hand on it and a computer screen. And it said, online church, the new norm. Now, some churches are accepting that. I don't think we should settle for that. I don't think we should settle for that because just if tuning in or just hearing a sermon was all that mattered, God would have ordained the live stream a long time ago. Before that, He would have ordained CDs. And before that, He would have ordained cassette tapes. And before that, He would have ordained written copies of the sermon to just be copied and distributed to all the people who wanted to hear. No, what did He ordain? Gathering. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't even like for his sermons to be recorded and be redistributed. He understood the value of it, but he did not like it very much because he said there's something about the Word of God being preached in and among the people of God that there is an experience there that simply cannot be had by cassette tape. And that is true. The bottom line is that the rhythm of our personal time with the Lord, the, bottom, the, the, the rhythm of our corporate time with the Lord, these are crucial rhythms for the Christian. If they are not steady now, brothers and sisters, they will not be steady when the real opposition comes. And Daniel's faith is steady, even when he's opposed. That's why Hebrews 11 holds him up for us. But one more thing about Daniel's faith. It, it's, not, it's not effective because of the quality of his faith. A lot of people complain about the quality of their faith. I wish I had better faith, bigger faith, greater faith, whatever. The, 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 it wasn't the quality of Daniel's faith that's ultimately on display. It's the object of Daniel's faith. That's on display. So that's the last thing to notice is that Daniel's faith is in God alone. Now, look, at, I'm going to start reading in verse 14. Look at this. The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down and to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel." 
Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Who's in the spotlight of all those verses? Who's the main actor on the stage there? Where is the camera focused? On the king, right? The king's distressed. The king can't figure out how to rescue Daniel. The king... uh, Uh, tries and tries, but the king is rebuked by these other men saying, you can't change anything, so the king is going to lose sleep, the king's going to fast, the king doesn't want any distractions, any entertainment. It's the king, the king, the king. And I had actually, up until this week, had not noticed how central the king is in these verses. Daniel only appears because he gets thrown in the lion's den. In fact, we don't even get a play-by-play of what happens in the lion's den. And yet everybody who reads this story is thinking, like, what was that like? What was it like in there? I want to know what's going on in there. And God says, no, 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 this is what you need to know. Not even Darius the Mede can save Daniel. He's working at it. He's fasting, he's trying, he's distressed, he's got all this power, he's got all these resources, but he is impotent. He can't do anything. A reminder to the Jews of what we read at the beginning of the service. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Only God can save Daniel. And, he, and as he emerges from the lion's den, he says so there. And this is the only time Daniel speaks in the whole chapter, by the way. So you should take note of that. And this is his main point. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. Daniel's faith is in God alone. And through faith, second point, we see God's salvation. We see God's salvation. God saves Daniel from the lion's den through his faith. Or as the end of verse 23 says, because he had trusted in his God. And this salvation from God is complete. Let's read verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. No kind of harm was found on him. Now, if you've been reading Daniel up till now, that should kind of ring with familiarity, shouldn't it? You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace? You remember how they came out? Were their clothes burned? Did their hair stink? Did it smell like they'd been by the campfire all night? No. Chapter 3, verse 27, the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. You see, they had trusted in the Lord too, and the Lord saved them completely. And that's what happens here. There's not a scratch, there's not a bump, there's not a little rip in his coat. There's no evidence that he's ever been in the lion's den. This isn't like a, like a movie like Rocky Four, right? Where, you know, Rocky's in the ring with Ivan Drago, and dude gets, he just gets beaten up like crazy. I mean, just beaten to a pulp. But then, you know, he musters up the strength and comes back and wins. That's not what happens in the lion's den. In the lion's den, Rocky steps in and Ivan falls over. End of story. That's it. 
because this is the total, absolute salvation from all harm by God alone. And in the midst of that salvation, there's this reversal, this moment of sobriety that you, that I could tell you felt it when we were reading in verse 24. The king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And when you're reading this story, that's when the hand goes up, right? I don't actually remember that part from children's Sunday school. But that's when the hand would go up, wouldn't it? What's all this business about the children and the wives? The short answer is, we're not in Israel anymore. Inclusion of children and wives in this kind of punishment is the Persian way, and it is horrible. Do you know what it also is? It's a reminder. You see, the gods that those other men always called on, they could do nothing to save them. Those gods can't see, those gods can't hear, those gods can't speak, and those gods could not save them. Only God, Daniel's God, our God, our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, only He saves. Not only is this salvation complete, it prompts praise. That's what happens at the end of the chapter. Darius gives praise, like, like speaks, you know, makes this royal proclamation like Nebuchadnezzar did at the end of chapter 3. There's actually a lot of similar terms used between the two. And he says, I make a decree, verse 26, that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Kingdoms will come and kingdoms will go, but the power belongs to God forever. His kingdom is forever. Man's power is limited. I mean, Darius learned that firsthand, didn't he? He couldn't do anything. The best thing he did was express to Daniel before he got thrown in, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And God delivers, and it prompts praise. I mean, the right response to the salvation of God is the praise of God, right? When someone comes up and they're in the baptistry and they're baptized and they profess their faith in Jesus Christ and they come and you see them after the service, you don't pat them on the back and say, way to go. That's the best thing you ever did. What should you say? Praise God. Why? Because they didn't do anything to save themselves. God saved them. He gets the glory. The one who does the saving gets the glory. So beware putting the glory anywhere else. 
I mean, if you're a Christian, listen, God has saved you. And how can we not praise Him? How can we not sing to Him? How can our hearts not overflow with adoration? We were dead in our sins, and He made us alive. We were under God's condemnation because of sin, and now we're free from condemnation because our sin has been forgiven. We had an unpayable debt to God, and Jesus paid it all. We were hopelessly lost, but now we're found, and we have hope. And so we praise Him. And before I close, we're going to praise Him right now. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise to the Son, both God and man. Jesus fulfilled God's sovereign plan. He shed His blood upon the tree and took God's righteous wrath for me. God raised Him up in victory o'er sin and death and hell all three ascended to his throne on high secured for us eternal life praise to the king his throne transcends his power and kingdom never end now and throughout eternity i'll praise the one who died for me god's salvation prompts praise because it's so complete it's so full it's so glorious and Daniel's faith in God's salvation thrust us forward in encouragement to know that we can and we should trust the Lord who saves. You can trust Him. We can trust Him. We see Daniel's example, and actually we are meant to do what the old children's Sunday school song encouraged us to do. Dare to be a Daniel. When Daniel was reviled by these men, he didn't revile back at them. When Daniel suffered at the hands of these men, he didn't threaten in response. He kept trusting the Lord who saves. He kept entrusting himself to the Lord who saves. And you see, Daniel's example actually points our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Peter writes, he, was, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, Jesus is the truly faithful one. He is the only truly innocent one. And Jesus had a conspiracy hatched against him by men who envied him. Jesus descended into the pit of death, but he wasn't rescued from it. He was devoured by it. God opened up his mouth of judgment on the Lord Jesus Christ so that the mouth of judgment, friends, would stay shut toward us. And a stone was laid over his tomb. And it was guarded so that nothing could be changed about it. But as the women came on the third day to anoint his body, they found the stone rolled away and an angel spoke to them and said, He is not here. He is risen. But it wasn't without scars. The scars on his hands and on his feet and in his side are glorious and eternal reminders of what it meant for the mouth of judgment to be shut on us. And this morning, just as God completely saved Daniel through his faith, Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Will you draw near to God? Will you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for your word. How thankful we are for its truth, for its relevance, for its endurance. That it speaks with clarity and conviction to every generation. We thank you for Daniel's life and example we know that he was not sinless. But we are thankful for his example of trusting you. Trusting you both in private and in public. Being steady in his trust of you as faith was opposed. Trusting in you alone, the only God who can save completely, the only God worthy of our praise. And we thank you that his story points us to the story that does save, to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his life, which was not mere example, but it was to save us from our sin. And so we pray you will help us to cling to him by faith, to walk by faith, to trust and obey, believing there is no other way. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.